Hey everyone, I'm Dan Cortler, the host of TED Climate. Each episode, we unpack the problems and solutions of climate change. This season of the show, we're getting into some big ideas that make us optimistic about the future, like meat grown from cells and leather made from mushrooms. And the best part? We look at how building a greener future can be an upgrade instead of a sacrifice. Find and follow TED Climate wherever you're listening to this. This is a CBC Podcast. What is priceless to you? How about good health, nature, or art? Climate change touches all three of these things in different ways. When it comes to health, it's global, and the world is hearing again how a warming planet threatens well-being, both physical and mental. Debates and tempers have flared over recent protests in Canada and abroad as well. It's highlighted most recently by people flinging food on fine art, a way they say to urge an end to fossil fuel use. But to begin, a close look at a small town with big ambitions. It's saving millions by embracing what the Earth already offers to counter the effects of climate change. And in the process, actually calculating the value of nature's treasures. Welcome to What on Earth? I'm Laura Lynch. You might recognize the town of Gibsons, B.C., as the sleepy seaside setting of the CBC television show The Beachcombers. Today, though, we're heading there for a different kind of beach adventure. The town is a living lab for how to put a value on nature. It's an idea that's spreading across the country as communities look to protect wild spaces and adapt to climate change. What on Earth producer Molly Siegel brings us that story. The town of Gibsons on BC's Sunshine Coast is about a 40-minute ferry ride from West Vancouver. As the ferry arrives, you see houses nestled in trees, mountains in the distance. Much of the town is on a big hill, and up that hill you'll find White Tower Park. I'm here in early October. There's haze from wildfire smoke. And brown crisp leaves litter the streets, a sign of the worsening drought, which I'll mention again later. On a warm day, walking through the tall trees at White Tower Park, it isn't hard to find people to talk about what brought them here and why they love it. Hi, I'm Marilyn, and Margaret and Nellie and Inga and I, we walk every Tuesday. We've been retired for quite a few years now, and we use different places on the Sunshine Coast to walk. But this is a beautiful one because it's nice and flat and it's in the forest and it's um, it just has a good feel. Uh, I'm Chrissy. And I'm Ryan. We're Belanger. locals. <laughs> yeah, we just live down the street and we come to the park every day. Yeah, and you're here with your, your two kids? Twins. The twins. Yeah, and we have three more. Yeah, but we come here literally every day. It doesn't matter the weather, really. This is where we take them to, like, get out their energy. So that's all forest, and that's where I used to play as a kid. And I don't like the video games and all the TV. I'd rather them be falling out of a tree than dying in Minecraft, right? Mind uh, introducing yourself for me and, and your uh, dog? Sure, my name's Sandy Brown. So that's Charlie Brown. She's uh, the love of my life. And she's a standard poodle. She's almost 16 years old, but she insists that we come here every day 
this is such an asset to be able to come out in among the trees and the bushes. You can barely hear the town and it's just so comforting. Hi Sue, we're on CBC Radio. You want to chat? <laughs> well, I walk here almost every day, I would say for half an hour. So it means, it means a lot to have a place in the centre of town with, that's treed. Well, really, we were walking through town store management facility. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she's right. This park is also a stormwater management facility. Not that you would see that if you came here for a stroll. You would notice the trees offering shade on a sunny day, or maybe the birds chirping. But I'm here to meet someone who can tell me about those other things that the park is up to behind the scenes. My name is Emmanuel Machado, and I'm the Chief Administrative Officer of the Town of Gibsons. He's also Chief Resiliency Officer, looking at how the town responds to climate change, emergencies, and risk. And that means thinking about infrastructure. What's a normal definition of infrastructure for a municipality? Normal definition is a engineered and manufactured asset that provides a service. Services like electricity and roads or sewage and clean drinking water. In 2012, Gibson's town council decided that definition was missing something. The nature in and around the town. A natural asset is a feature in the environment that provides a service. That part is still missing from most communities' definition. The town's inventory of its natural assets included an aquifer which supplies water to the community. As we walk around the park, Machado tells me how Gibson's is expanding its thinking to protect the entire water cycle. The aquifer gets its water from several areas. Its recharge comes from surface infiltration, but also comes through creeks and ponds. So we understand that there's a relation between the level of the aquifer and the amount of water that enters creeks as well. And so it goes back to recognizing that as a principle, we're minor operators in a highly interconnected system. A system that starts with surface water, rainwater and runoff from the local mountain. Right now we're looking at one of the main ponds in White Tower Park, and as you can see, it's very, very low. There's barely any water in it. We're walking on a, a path here and there's, I don't know, a bit of a creek on one side, a culvert. This is all like a system to basically slow water down. Is that the idea? Yes, it is. And it's sort of the water that comes from the nearby neighborhoods makes its way through the park. It enters these ponds. And f from here, what surrounds the ponds are trails or elevated trails that work as barriers and ultimately discharges to Charmon Creek and uh, within a couple of kilometers it's in Sailor Sea. A decade ago, instead of building a stormwater facility, the town turned to this park. They asked, could the park itself be used as infrastructure? It wasn't about building a piece of infrastructure where the park is. It was about putting a value on the services this place already provided and then making room for more water. Really the upgrades were as simple as just like creating the ponds and then the little like culverts is that it yeah that's it that's really nature is simple in a lot of ways to speak an infrastructure language 
in 2016, the park's service area was expanded. In two places, dirt was dug up to create a series of little ponds. You know, when you construct an engineered pipe, you know, there's a sort of a limit on the capacity to, to convey water. In this case, the ponds surpassed the capacity we were able to put in a pipe. The ponds can hold more water than the pipes, he says. And looking ahead... In the future climate scenarios, the pond is much more, the pond approach is much more flexible in expanding its capacity as needed. The town already has plans to dig out more ponds. And if you're not huge on nature, or the wonky workings of municipalities, here's something else that might pique your interest. All of this actually saved the town money. A lot of money. We're projected to save around three and a half million dollars. Call it even six years, um, eighty thousand uh, dollars on maintenance costs. We've avoided those. Millions of dollars avoided in new infrastructure and maintenance. It's a big figure for a small community where a one percent tax hike equals about thirty-seven thousand dollars for the town. Machado says. Since 2016, the upgrades to White Tower Park have worked well, addressing flooding from water running downhill. It was seriously put to the test almost a year ago when BC experienced heavy rains from an atmospheric river. Across the path from us, there's one of the stormwater ponds, and it's pretty empty. Like, it's muddy, there's a few puddles. In November of last year, what did it look like? The water would be right up to the top, and in some cases would overflow that culvert. And so that we're talking about five or six feet of water, or maybe eight feet of water. In a severe rain event, this gets pretty full. Filled to the brim, it still did its job, he says. As the greenhouse gases we emit catch up to us in the form of extremes, from torrential rain and flooding, to the absence of rain which made national news just a couple weeks ago. Record drought across the region has meant little to no rainfall since July and a dwindling water supply. When the region around Gibsons was low on water, the town's aquifer remained steady. And it even supplied water to others in need, Machado says. It's clear to him that how we adapt to climate change is a moving target. But there's no doubt about the value nature holds from carbon sequestration, air and water purification, flood prevention, just to name a few. And I think when you look at climate and how quickly it's changing, we think we don't have enough time or money to replace the infrastructure fast enough to deal with the pace of change. And our response is quicker in our opinion, and more effective if we enhance something we already have rather than build something new. The town is using this asset approach to look at the ecosystems surrounding them. Machado leads the way to another example, Georgia Beach. We stand where the trees meet a small, rocky beach. We look out at the Salish Sea as waves crash into the shore. Georgia Beach is one of those natural assets in the town's inventory. In other words, it's one of the ecosystems it sees a value not just in keeping, but restoring. Uh, unfortunately, it's one that is quite debilitated due to the impacts of, of, of sea level rise and storms and the increasing impacts of climate change we're seeing here. 
the beach is getting smaller and smaller as storms and sea level rise wash away remaining rocks, sand, and logs, eventually exposing tree roots. And spirals from there and then we lose trees and lose the bank, which holds the land together in this particular site. And so what we want to do is understand how, how to restore an area like this One thing they're focusing on is eelgrass, which the Department of Fisheries and Oceans compares to an underwater lawn. It's an important habitat for critters, including salmon. And, bonus, it stores carbon. If the town doesn't intervene, the impacts of climate change will continue to erode and wash away this habitat, says Machado. And as a consequence, we'd have to construct works that won't provide the same level of service that a natural area would provide. Some communities turn to seawalls to protect the coastline. Machado does not mince words when it comes to those. The building of seawalls using concrete blocks or, or, or stacked rock has been a miserable failure. Part of the problem is the sheer force of the waves hitting the shoreline. So then, part of the solution? Slow the waves down by building gravel bars underwater near the shore. That work as sort of natural speed bumps for wave action. The town also plans to build beds of shrubs and grasses onshore to prevent erosion. Also replanting eelgrass underwater. Whether coastline or forest, the town is looking at how the ecosystems in and around the community are connected. Once you sort of realize that, you also realize that, you know, everything from how we plan how decisions are made and so on. Like, we're going to need to up our game as a society. And I think a lot of our answers are in nature. At the same time, Gibson's got to work valuing its natural assets like White Tower Park. It also became a model for other communities. A group called the Municipal Natural Assets Initiative was inspired by the town and even calls Gibson's a living lab, a model of how a community can take stock of the nature around it put a value on it, and keep it healthy. The valuation question, I think, it gets misunderstood. It's not about putting a dollar on the environment. It's the furthest thing from that. But the reality is that decisions are made with data, particularly with financial data. And if you want to provide a business case for a natural alternative, then you have to understand the value of that service. He says this helps the town understand what's at stake if something is lost. For example, the aquifer. If they don't manage it correctly, it could go dry, and that would cost the town money to build something to replace it. You could think of putting a price on infrastructure as the language of municipal politics. For us to go to to a decision-making body like our council, it's not enough to say that nature is nice and that we should just leave it alone. Laura, as you heard Emmanuel Machado say, in Gibson's, there's a push to help nature just do its thing. So this is about valuing nature as a way to make a case to keep it intact. And then also to avoid building the infrastructure that would actually do the same job. Yes. And Gibson's is just where it starts. From here on the West Coast and out on the Atlantic Coast and in the North, there's talk about, quote, natural assets and green infrastructure. I hate terms like that. Can't they just talk plainly? That's so much jargon. 
Yeah, it is. It's a lot of jargon, but let's not forget that at the heart of it, it's simple. It's trees. It's wetlands. It's nature doing the work that it does, and those places have also been really compromised by development. So what we're talking about here is leaving the swamp, saving the swamp, rather than paving over the swamp. Yes, exactly. But valuing all of this for our use, putting a price on it, you even heard Machado wrestling with that a little bit. Well, I can I can understand that because the, the risk is if you put a price on it, you turn it into a commodity, and, and that's exactly what they're trying not to do. Yeah, and it's it's something that some people do worry about because the price tag is just one slice of the value of these places. But let's dive in. I want to introduce you to three people in Manitoba, in Alberta, and another in BC. So let's start here in BC. It's rehabilitation work happening at the Squamish Estuary, about an hour north of Vancouver. I talked to a counselor from the Squamish Nation to learn more about this work. Wilson Williams, Swelkton is my ancestral name. I'm elected counselor and spokesperson for the Squamish Nation. Laura, I also want to note quickly, the town of Gibsons is on Squamish territory. Williams confirmed that the town of Gibsons is talking to the nation uh, and and seeks guidance from them as well about these uh, natural assets projects that they're working on. But what I mostly talked to Councillor Wilson-Williams about was the estuary. It's something you need to see. It's in the valley, of course, of the Squamish. And to this day, it's the beauty. You can just feel the rich history and the energy there is beautiful, especially knowing that the restoration project is occurring today as well. Now, I'm kicking myself for never having gone there, especially after my sister showed me the pictures that she took when she went there with her niece recently. It is stunningly beautiful, and I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's being restored. Is it the estuary that's being restored? Yeah, there's work on the entire estuary, and Williams described to me, I guess, the backstory that's led to that, which is the toll that ongoing development has had on that area since colonization. And in particular, a spit was built on the estuary, and there were plans even for a coal port. But that coal port never became reality. Yeah, exactly. But the spit stayed there anyway. Uh, And this estuary is an important place for salmon. So that spit has really compromised that habitat for them. Williams talked about that as well as how things used to be there. I went there with a few of our elders, our knowledge keepers that actually grew up there. One of the elders that's on council right now, one of our hereditary chiefs, shared a few stories. It's a place where it's home for us. But at the same time, you know, we can have our people live there all year. But at times we didn't because we hunted there as well. So it's if you have a village or permanent space there, that would deter wildlife from coming there. We don't want to have that direct impact and distraction of their way of life and impact their cycle as well. So I think that's a teaching that I actually learned when I was up on the land there. The idea of a natural asset, I think probably what we're saying here is the estuary meets the definition. Oh, yeah, it does. But even before they were thinking of it in those terms, this restoration project itself at the estuary has actually been going on for decades, but not too long ago. The nation, the District of Squamish, a watershed society, and some others came together to put a price on the estuary. And all of the services from the estuary would cost 2 to $4 million a year to replicate. That's a big number. But I'm wondering, has that actually helped make the restoration happen? Well, this year, part of the spit came down, and it really seems to be pushing things along. That's the benefit of 
being able to reciprocate the value is being able to subsidize the need for the restoration project to come to fruition, but also be fully completed. And that vision does have a number. But at the same time, for me, it's around educating. Williams, though, is wary of seeing it only in those terms of dollars. Sure. But putting a price on an estuary, I'm guessing that's not enough in and of itself. It's true. I mean, and you know that with, with nature, there's some things that are priceless, as you've said. And and that's actually something that everyone I spoke to kind of said in their own way uh, and for their own reasons. My name is Laren Bill. I'm a member of the Pelican Lake First Nation located in Treaty 6 ter- territory in Saskatchewan. Laren Bill is a First Nations advisor for the Winnipeg metro region. So those are the municipalities that are surrounding Winnipeg. And the region is working on an inventory of natural assets. And Laren Bill is gathering perspectives and input from First Nations within that region, Treaty 1 nations. He's working with Jim Bear, former chief of Broken Head Ojibwe Nation. And when they started this work, the term natural assets kind of stopped them in their tracks. When Jim and I were, were looking at the just the term assets, we automatically saw that as a placing a value on the land, a dollar value. And we had challenge with that and that Mother Earth provides all different types of supports to life and organisms, not just humans. A lot of the moose habitat in the Treaty 1 territory has been diminished. And, and from their perspective, they would like to see more moose habitat rehabilitated so that they can again hunt in their traditional territory. So, you know, how do you assess the worth of land for moose? Uh, He also says it's hard to measure the value of land when it's, you know, around for youth so they can get out and learn. We're seeing more and more First Nations wanting to look at land-based education curriculum and and they're starting to reintroduce that into their communities as they see that as a a means to connect to the past, but also bring those teachings to the future. So again, we're coming back to this very profound idea of trying to value things that you don't traditionally value, um, such as education based on the land, reconnecting with your culture and your traditional territory. That's really difficult to put a value on. And in addition to that, Uh, He described to me how high the stakes are, that programs like this can provide just a huge social benefit, huge mental health benefit. And you can see there's a gap between the value that Laren Bill is seeing as he talks to First Nations and the way that a municipality might value the same nature. He says we're in a time of reconciliation and things have to change. It needs to be more inclusive, uh, working together and and not working in silos uh, from one another. Uh, both being at the table and recognizing uh, all interests uh, in the uses of land and and recognizing that they don't have just one use, but there are are multi-uses and multi-purposes. I have a third person to introduce you to or reintroduce you to. Reintroduce? Okay. (laughs) Um, Who? Do you remember Sherry Young in Okotoks, Alberta? I actually do, because we had such an interesting conversation on the show um, about how the community of Okotoks is actually doing this, putting a price on its wetlands. Yeah, uh, exactly. And she's the municipality's climate change and energy specialist. 
Okotoks is a 40-minute drive south of Calgary. It's a growing community, so the municipality is dealing with applications from developers. And now, the wetland valuation that Young worked on is being put to the test. What we've done is identified our high-value wetlands, and we bring them to the table, and we ensure that developers know. So where we have a high-value wetland, we are in discussions with the developer currently to say, hey, this high-value wetland is in this new place, in this place that we want developed. What can you bring forward that preserves that wetland and makes it a part of that unique community? What are they telling developers to, to do? Or do they have to put their architecture and their building around the wetlands? Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of the idea that instead of saying, okay, we're going to infill this wetland, that they're going to work with it and around it. Um, and I think the idea is like in creative ways, right? And it's it's really important, not just for wetlands, but for other, you know, natural assets, right? Other pieces <laughs> of nature. Many of the climate change impacts we see across Canada and around the world, whether that's flood, drought, heat waves, things like wetlands, things like forests, these places help us adapt to climate change only if we take care of them. There's more and more research about how integrating natural assets into communities provide cooling spaces where there's more paved areas that really hold on to that heat. So it's really coming to the forefront as an adaptation measure, not just as a carbon sequestration, nature-saving hippy-dippy kind of thing. There's documented evidence that shows over years of science and applications that the services that are provided by natural assets, wetlands, woodlands, all of those things are actually our best tool in adapting to a changing climate. I love it. Hippy-dippy. But the other thing I picked up was that word adaptation, because I'm hearing it in so many places these days. The federal government has an adaptation strategy are there other places where it's being talked about, Molly? Oh, yeah. Buckle up, because we're <laughs> going to hear even more about it in the coming weeks. And that's because the last UN climate report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change talked a lot about adaptation. So that means it'll likely come up at the UN climate talks in Egypt in November. Okay, that sounds like something we will be listening to, Molly. Thank you very much. Thank you, Laura. Now, the annual Global Conference on Climate Change starts in just a few days in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. There's so much at stake. As the UN Environment Programme warns, climate catastrophe is ahead if governments don't take more action to cut emissions. And we're devoting our next episode entirely to the UN Summit. We're looking at whether Canada has lived up to its commitments made a year ago in Glasgow at the last conference. We'll also be digging into what's at stake for Canadians as the world debates climate policy and specifically for Inuit communities in the Arctic, where rising temperatures are transforming life. Paper or plastic? Oh, I forgot my own bags. Um, plastic. No, wait, paper. Hang on, which one's better? I don't know. Don't stress, Neil. The podcast Living Planet is here to help. We know you want to do what's right for the planet, but you're busy and you have to make a thousand small decisions every day. So we endeavor to answer what's better. Cotton or polyester? Tea or coffee? For answers to these environmental conundrums and your questions, subscribe to Living Planet wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to What on Earth on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius XM. I'm Laura Lynch. That is the sound of mashed potatoes hitting a Monet in a German museum. It's just one example of activists hurling food at art to protest against climate change. You've probably seen the backlash on social media 
And you might be wondering what the heck throwing soup or mashed potatoes has to do with reducing emissions. My next guest says these protests actually have a purpose, and we may be seeing more of them in the lead-up to COP27. Dana Fisher is a professor of sociology at the University of Maryland, and she's in the middle of writing a book on just this subject. Dana, hello. Hi, how are you, Laura? I'm fine, thank you. All right, mashed potatoes on a Monet, tomato soup at a Van Gogh. There's an element of absurdity to these recent protests. Why are they doing this? Well, to be honest, Laura, I believe that the reason that we're seeing this increasing sense of, I guess we could call it absurdity to the types of actions that these protesters are taking is that they're getting very frustrated with the lack of actual climate action in terms of political outcome coming out of these negotiations and the progress towards addressing the climate crisis. As you mentioned, we're about to hit COP27, which is the 27th time that the different countries have come together since the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change was agreed upon to try to address climate change. And unfortunately, if you look at any figure that depicts uh, emissions, we see a steady rise in emissions since the beginning of this 27-year period. And many activists, particularly young people, are extremely frustrated and concerned that the climate is changing and we have no time to wait. So they haven't been getting a lot of attention for many of the tactics they've tried. There have been many marches in the street, peaceful, legally permitted protests. More recently, we've seen activists stopping traffic all over, and that also didn't get as much attention as they had hoped. So now there are some activists who are going into museums and throwing food. That is causing attention, and we're talking about it today, the question of whether that's causing the right kind of attention and if it's going to actually have an effect on Climate policymaking is a question that we still need to think about. Right, and we we will talk some more about that. But I just want you to listen to one of the protesters involved with the UK group Just Stop Oil. Her name is Indigo Rumbelow. She was interviewed on the BBC, and, and she insisted that the actions and the strategy are justified. Nick, there's many times when it, um, when I'm sure you will agree that it is correct that people break the law. So if there is a burning house and I want to save a child, I will break a window causing criminal damage. If there's a government who's persecuting a group of peoples, I would hide them in my house no matter what the risk to myself is. So is if our government yes, is, is pursuing new oil and gas despite the warnings of the global scientific community, then I will stop them. I don't want to sign a petition. I don't want to go on a march. I want to march up to whoever's making this decision, sit myself down on the road, glue myself to to that road, and wait for an answer. All right, as I said, that was Indigo Rumbelow talking to the BBC. Dana, this was after weeks of these kinds of actions, from stopping traffic to throwing soup on masterpieces. I'm wondering what you think of her justification. Well, I I understand this argument having to do with the ends justifying the means. The question I I don't know the answer to is the degree which throwing soup on a masterpiece is actually going to then hold whoever is responsible accountable. I mean, that's certainly not going to directly stop fossil fuel extraction or expansion of fossil fuel infrastructure, which, you know, as somebody who contributed to the most recent round of the IPCC, I can say is very clearly playing a very substantial role in the climate crisis. Yeah, you you did the report for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. You looked, reviewed all the research into the relationship between climate activism and climate outcomes. What did you find? 
first of all, I mean, one of the things that I found was that there's just very, very unfortunately small amount of research that's been done so far that asks this question. There is some research that talks about protest, particularly playing a role in you know, legislation being passed and other types of decisions happening. But at the same time, there's also research that shows that there is frequently a citizen backlash, which can have the opposite effect on expansion of clean energy infrastructure, for example. So what I basically found is that we need to learn a lot more, but there is some indication that people who engage politically and participate in activism can have a positive effect on the political outcomes. But we also know that it's an extremely indirect process, right? So the question is, can throwing soup on a masterpiece or throwing mashed potatoes or throwing, was it a pie? I think it was a pie. on Pie on or a cake or some kind of pastry, yeah. <laughs> some sort of a dessert. <laughs> Smashing a dessert into a wax figure. Now, how do we get from there to policy outcome? And it's an extremely indirect process. But one part of that process is changing public opinion and getting media attention for the issue. And there's no question in my mind, based on what we've seen since these types of actions have happened, that the media has been talking a lot more about climate activism than we've seen at least since probably the Paris round of the climate negotiations, which was in 2015. Now, I just here in Vancouver, activists have been arrested for protesting against old growth logging and the expansion of the Trans Mountain Pipeline from Alberta to ports in Vancouver. They've, they've used these attention getting tactics like gluing themselves to bridge decks and roads to stop traffic. Uh, I want you to listen to a young man named Zane Hack, who was arrested and went to jail for his involvement in the protests. Like people might think, why are we blocking bridges? But the fact of the matter is that. If we want to get anywhere, we need to provoke a national debate. If people are going to be willing to suffer for their beliefs, getting arrested and facing the consequences of breaking the law, then that will have an effect. What effect does it have when people are actually willing to be arrested for a cause? Well, I mean, the effect certainly is that it can enter into the public consciousness and create more of a public conversation about the issue. I mean, it also can turn people off. And there is some research that talks about more confrontational activism playing a role in discouraging people from being open-minded to issues. But at the same time, I can tell you from the research, those people who are observing, if they are sympathetic to climate change, actually the research suggests that those people will be paying more attention. And so one, this kind of an action can mobilize sympathizers who may not be involved yet. It also research shows can help provide more support for more moderate groups and more moderate actions. And so I think that those effects can be you know, tangible today. The effect of whether or not it's going to stop fossil fuel expansion, it's unclear the degree to which we get there from that starting point. But I know that at least you know some of the people whom you've played here in the show, they all of a sudden have a much larger megaphone through which to present their positions than they would if they were just doing something, you know, on the street with 100,000 other people legally on, you know, on a sunny day. Uh, there's one more piece of tape I want to play for you. Um, this is a noted Canadian environmentalist and CBC broadcaster, David Suzuki, who has just announced that he's retiring from hosting the CBC program, Nature of Things. But he says that's not going to stop his activism. He's 86 years old, by the way. Uh, here's what he told the CBC. 
if government doesn't act, people are going to take more desperate measures. What is it going to take? I thought Hurricane Katrina was it. When I went to the States after Hurricane Katrina, for the first time I would meet people who say, gee, do you think that had anything to do with global warming? You know, we've had Hurricane Andrew, now Hurricane Ian. We've had devastating forest fires all over the planet. What the hell is it going to take? David Suzuki, known for speaking his mind more and more as the years have gone by. I'm wondering if you think we're going to see, as he says, more desperate measures in the near future, and if so, what that could possibly mean. Well, I mean, I think, Laura, that actually I I agree with David on both fronts here. And in fact, as you mentioned before, I'm currently writing a book. The book is called Saving Ourselves from Climate Shocks to Climate Action. And what I'm basically talking about in the book is these what I'm calling climate shocks which are deviations from normal climate patterns. And so what my research shows is that because we're going to see more and more climate shocks, the activism that will come out of that will continue to be more people participating and more people taking more extreme and confrontational measures to get their voices heard. And there is historical precedent for that. So I don't think he's wrong at all. Can you give me an example of a protest tactic that's worked to bring about social change? Sure. I mean, well, if we go back to the civil rights period in the United States, uh, we saw basically what we're starting to see now with the climate movement. We saw a suite, a range of tactics that were employed simultaneously. Some marches that were peaceful, some with civil disobedience, some which were more aggressive. We saw the bus boycott. And we also saw protesters who would come out and intentionally engage in civil disobedience in a way that they knew would provoke law enforcement to respond in a way that was repressive. And we saw what some of my colleagues have called tactical insurgency, where you see these more confrontational tactics being taken that then are met with repression that becomes so violent that the general population starts to lose the capacity to support or be willing to ignore the injustices. This whole process, which was kind of a dance between the activists and law enforcement that kept growing until policymakers realized that they would lose power and that the general public was turning. And I think that with the amount of repression we're starting to see against climate activists, if we continue to see more and more of them out in the streets as the climate crisis worsens, it's very likely that the repression and the responses to the repression will lead many more people to change their opinions and put pressure on the government to do something. Where do you see repression happening? Well, I mean, the first place I see repression happening, or I'm predicting repression will happen, which it's not a big stretch here, is at the COP27 meetings in Egypt, because the UN is holding this meeting in a country that is known to be not open to democratic participation. It's not open to peaceful civil disobedience or any types of broader activism, as we would see in the United States or in Canada. And law enforcement tends to be quite repressive in response to that. And if we end up seeing a bunch of young people who are doing sit-ins and glued themselves somewhere to block the road or whatever, getting beaten up, that's going to play a big role in public opinion, I would imagine. Yeah, the Egyptian government has said it will allow protests. I gather you're taking a more of a wait-and-see approach. I mean, they'll, they'll allow protests, but what kind of protests, right? I would actually predict that some of the organizations who are going to Egypt are going to Egypt to engage in civil disobedience, but they also realize, and they've been probably well-trained to prepare for the fact that civil disobedience is not going to be taken kindly to. 
especially if it involves blocking infrastructure or I do not expect that. I mean, and obviously I don't know because I haven't spoken to these activists individually, but I don't expect that they will try to permanently damage a masterpiece or, or a relic. I think they're going to try to get a lot of attention. And when they do, I think we should all be watching to keep track of how law enforcement responds, because that's when we see repression and that's when we see this cycle of escalation that can lead to horrible images and it can also lead to a more massive mobilization. Well, we will be watching as it unfolds. Dana Fisher, thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. We've got another update now on the Royal Bank of Canada. As you may remember, the Competition Bureau has opened an investigation into complaints the bank is engaging in greenwashing in its advertising surrounding efforts to fight climate change, and that is ongoing. But RBC has now released its new targets for reducing emissions in its lending portfolio. It's aiming to do that not by dropping customers, but by having carbon-intensive clients such as oil and gas become more energy efficient by 2030. Still, if those businesses expand, they could emit more carbon. In that sense, the RBC plan is about reducing the intensity of emissions rather than absolute emissions. Now, the bank calls the targets aspirational. Some Indigenous leaders and environmental groups are criticizing the plan. Stan.Earth calls it essentially more greenwashing and a license to continue to pollute. We asked RBC for an interview. Instead, it sent us a written statement saying in part that it's focusing its attention where it will have the biggest impact. In the last few years, some Canadians have suffered or even died due to climate disaster, whether it's heat in British Columbia. Do I stay in my, ho- in my apartment and pass out and have nobody know? Or do I come out here and breathe the air and it be in the heat? It's like a catch-22. You don't really know what to do. Or wildfires in Manitoba. The fire was so close behind our nursing station that they had the sprinklers going on, the hoses all around. You could see the flame on the tree line. The smoke was very bad yesterday morning. It was The sky was yellow and you could just see dark gray clouds just rolling in. Or storms in Nova Scotia. How do I get there in my wheelchair when the only accessible transit people can't work because their houses have been damaged and their places have been damaged and they have no power? These kinds of experiences underscore what the medical journal The Lancet reported a few days ago. Climate change is a dire health threat. At about the same time, Canada's public health officer released her annual report. And for the first time, the focus is on climate change. Canada's Chief Public Health Officer, Dr. Teresa Tam, is here to talk with me about it. Dr. Tam, hello. Hello. Nice to be on your show. Why did you decide to zero in on climate? Well, I think we really need to change our collective mindset to think about climate change not just as an environmental issue, but as one of the most important public health threats that we're facing. And in fact, the WHO, the World Health Organization, calls climate change the greatest health threat of our time. So this needs urgent attention, and we really have no choice. I'm wondering whether some of the biggest climate-related health impacts that you've seen across Canada. Some of the really key impacts of climate change on health 
includes, of course, the most obvious ones such as injuries and deaths and mental health impacts as it relates to extreme weather events. I think we've all seen the impact of heat stress, like the heat dome uh, impact in Western Canada very, very recently, where there's health effects such as heat stroke, dehydration, um, cardiovascular, respiratory impacts, as well as mental health impacts. Some of the things that the, the public health agency has been most engaged with is the impact of climate on infectious diseases, such as Lyme disease that has been climbing, increased food and water insecurity, and then impacts poverty, forced migration, conflicts, and, and has massive cultural impacts, of course, on First Nations, uh, Inuit, and Métis communities. That is a very long list. <laughs> the, and the, yeah, and the last few years have exposed gaps in Canadian health care, including the crisis in long-term care, long emergency room waits, hundreds of deaths attributed to the heat dome uh, in Western Canada. I'm wondering with that, that list that you just shared, can Canada cope with more health impacts from climate change? I think there are really multiple ways that public health uh, can help. One is um, actually providing the data. I mean, you've seen how data is very important um, during the pandemic. The health system as well as other systems can help focus their response and their programming to those who need the support the most, such as seniors that you've just mentioned, um, indigenous peoples that are working on traditional lands, farmers who might need further mental health support, people with disabilities in Hurricane Fiona, uh, there were accounts of people with disabilities who couldn't uh, really evacuate or mobilize in the way that um, others could. And people living in low incomes, for example, so by bringing the data to bear um, in a disaggregated way, we can help further understand and prioritize our actions to these communities facing disproportionate risks. Do you, I'm wondering, curious to know whether you see the role of public health and, and your role in your position as being coping with the effects of climate change rather than tackling what is causing climate change, which is rising emissions? Mm -hmm. I think it's both, and mostly in the adaptation space and how do we thrive and live as healthy, uh, alive, and be, be as well as we can despite um, the changing climate. We're sort of part of the health system that is very good at interfacing with other sectors. So if we intersect with environment um, uh, ministries or city planning industries, we can actually reap those co-benefits of reducing the greenhouse gas as well as increasing physical activity. So people often forget public health on the mitigation space, but we absolutely have to be part of any adaptation strategy. I, I, th this may be, uh, put you in a bit of a difficult position, but I wonder if you also, with your very public platform and profile that you've achieved over the last couple of years, think that part of your role is to call out government for its lack of action or it, relative lack of action in getting a handle on emissions, which are still rising. What, what happens is I think um, we can contribute by making climate change real. Look, if you see the actual health impacts and we can measure it, people pay more attention to it. Whereas more abstract um, metrics like the level of greenhouse gas or the size of the ozone hole, et cetera, or even you know, low level lying ozone uh, in the 
the atmosphere doesn't really translate as well to people's thinking and the behavioral shifts that needs to happen as it become uh, as it pertains to climate change. So, so I think that the, the um, advocacy we can make is to show that climate change is very much present and that also we can do something about it. Uh, and the other part of your experience that I'm really interested to tap into is about COVID-19. So much division has erupted over the handling the pandemic, vaccines, restrictions. I'm wondering what you think it would take for Canadians to come together to fight against climate change and cut back on emissions to protect their health. Yeah, so one of the key ingredients for the success um, in our pandemic response is actually continue to build social cohesion and that people can come together and make a difference. Um, and I think public health can contribute in many ways based on our lessons learned because you can have the best plans and the best stockpiles uh, and the best science in, 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 in vaccines being actually created in such a short time. You got to actually have people up, uh, take up those uh, recommendations. So there's a lot to be learned, I think, from that experience and how we uh, support people and nudging people and using behavioral science to gauge what might be effective in having everyone um, play their the role in um, climate adaptation or climate um, mitigation. I, I have this vision of having someone like a Teresa Tam doing daily briefings on climate in, in, out of Ottawa so you can start to, as you say, change those behaviors. Do you think that would be useful? So I think we need to be able to strengthen that capacity so that they can put the data in front of people and use that data to affect um, change in people's behaviors and, and how people can uh, protect themselves and each other is, is really fundamental, I think, to adapt, adapting to our warming uh, environment. And make that explicit connection to climate change in the process. Absolutely. And I think... Um, you know, everything can sound a bit depressing and we know that <laughs> climate change and thinking about it has a big impact on mental health. Um, but I think what brings hope is that we can do something that doing the actual taking action can really help us make a difference and uh, make all of our lives better is a really important approach. Can I ask and you? So, can I ask you what you do in your own life to take action aside from your very public platform and reports? I'm just wondering what you do on a day to day basis. Yes, so I think uh, one of the things is I try to um, to keep up with my physical and mental health by physical exercises, walking around as much as I can. I mean. Um, some, sometimes your work doesn't allow that, but um, yes, I would think you get accosted. It, I think you get accosted in the street if you go for walks outside. <laughs> it is it's actually very surprising when I'm on my bike with my helmet on <laughs> and my sunglasses. Uh, people still recognize me, which is very, a very strange phenomenon. <laughs> but I do still, in in any case, try and cycle to get my groceries. Um, and um, it's probably not something I talk about a lot. Is I am a vegan. Um, I do think that people should have a very balanced diet, whichever diet they choose. But having more plant-based diets can do many things, uh, including improving on your um, on your health. One other thing that I, I can't really leave the show without mentioning is our connection um, 
to the land and to animals and plants are very important. We have to remember that we all exist together. And it is actually indigenous knowledges that I think best express that interconnectedness of humans, animals, plants, the ecosystem. I think you were, you must have been, you must have already knew what my next question was because it's exactly on that point. And you, because you do write about this in the report, you highlight other ways of seeing ecosystems. That includes a perspective of Dr. Shannon Waters, who's from the Stamanis First Nation. She's a medical officer with Vancouver Island Health. And, and we spoke to her. I just want you to listen to what she had to say. In a lot of conversations, sometimes what I feel is missing between the connection of human health and the health of Mother Earth or the health of the environment is that it's actually a reciprocal relationship. In my own home territory on Vancouver Island, Hulkamitnam Territory, we looked after our home territory and it looked after us for generations upon generations. Our ecosystem is our health system. And so that relationship which requires us to look after these places and to treat them with respect, to treat them as living beings that help nourish us and we help nourish it back. When we look at it from a relational perspective, health isn't something that's achieved. It's actually maintained and nourished like any relationship is. And that really in terms of what's going on with our environment, particularly climate change, the topic of Dr. Teresa Tam's latest report is it's healing a relationship. I'm wondering what you think of, of what she had to say. Well, that is such great wisdom and it's inspirational. And, and that's why uh, I featured um, Dr. Waters in my report as well. It is so fundamental to the forward vision of public health as a whole. And Indigenous uh, experts, I believe, are leading the way and helping us find our way um, to, to adapt. Um, and, and by doing this together, co-developing, co-leading, and marrying up these different uh, multiple ways of seeing Dr. Teresa Tam, I appreciate so much you taking the time to talk to us about the subject. I hope we can speak again in the future. It will be my pleasure. Thank you so much. If you missed any of today's program, you can listen on demand at CBC Listen. And you can also subscribe to our podcast there and hear the best of what's on offer from CBC Radio. That's all for us this week. The show was put together by associate producers Danielle Piper, Zoe Yunker, and Emily Vance. Producers Rachel Sanders, Molly Siegel, and me. Matthias Wolfson is our engineer. Catherine Rolfson is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.